As we come now to hear from God's word, you can turn with me if you'd like to read along to Mark in chapter 11. It's about three-fourths of the way through your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Um, That's Mark chapter 11. And as you turn there, would you please pray with me? Our God, as we come before your word, we know that we cannot understand these things without your help, so we pray that you would guide us by your spirit, bring light to our hearts and light to our minds. Would you use this to make us holy and fruitful people, a people who truly worship? We ask these things then, In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This is Mark's Gospel, and chapter 11 will start in verse 11. And he, the he there is Jesus, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to it to see if he could find anything on it, and when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and who does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of God. So now let me put all of this in a little bit of context and then just remind us of where we are. So Jesus, at the beginning of this, has just arrived in Jerusalem. And we know, because he's just told us in chapter 10, that he came to Jerusalem specifically to die. That it's not just to heal, but that he's coming to be delivered over to death by his own will so that he will be a ransom or a payment uh, for sin of all who believe. 
And so last week, or last time as we are going through this, we're reading through Mark as he, he's just come through what we call during Easter time the triumphal entry. So he's riding in to Jerusalem on the donkey. In fact, I just had a conversation with my brother about donkeys and how funny they are about things. But Jesus is riding in to Jerusalem on a donkey and people are, are putting down all their coats and cloaks and laying it all out and, and they're praising him and they're blessing him and they're crying out, Hosanna and all these things. And we see Jesus, who is the king, as a very humble and meek man, that even though he's worshipped, you get the sense that there's humbleness in him. And that's usually the way, if you see Jesus drawn out or in paintings, like in children's Bibles and such, we see this sort of meek side of Jesus, that usually he's like petting a lamb, you know, or he, there's kids around and he's got one on his lap. And a lot of those image, images are, are true to what we see of Jesus in the scriptures. He is a, a humble person, but by itself, those pictures are not the full picture of Jesus. If we only have pictures of Jesus in our minds of the meek, mild man, we're going to turn him into a one-dimensional storybook character, but Jesus is much more real and complex than that. Because here in this text, instead of mercy, we see Jesus in judgment, Jesus in justice, and even a Jesus who is angry. We see at the beginning of the text, he's cursing a fig tree so that it withers away and the only miracle in the gospels of destruction and then we see jesus flipping over tables part of me like that almost finds that humorous if it wasn't so sad that he's physically taking the table and just turning it over and in john's gospels he talks about these sorts of things describes jesus as taking the coins of the money changers and just dumping out the coins and making a, a whip then and driving out the people of the animals out of the temple jesus here is smoking mad and the question in my mind is this what is jesus so angry about what is Jesus so really angry about? Because that matters for us. Now, before we can answer that question, we have to deal with a deeper issue because we have to address the fact that Jesus even is angry in the first place because that can feel odd or strange to us because we think anger itself is bad. We think that anger is sin. And part of that is because so often when we see anger expressed in the world, it is sin. It's aggressive, it's hateful, it's hurtful. But we think that anger itself is sin. We lump it into those sort of negative emotions category, and so we think that anger can never be acceptable. And yet, in the scripture, God is sometimes angry. And it's right for him to be that way. Let me look at a, a brief example. You can turn if you'd like or just listen. In 2 Samuel chapter 22. So what's happening in this context is you'll remember one of the, the first king of Israel was King Saul. And at the beginning he started off well, but he sort of kind of faded away as the years went by. He kind of drifted further and further from God. So eventually the Lord replaced King Saul with David. And, but before that happened, David was pursued by Saul pretty vigorously. 
there was violence. He tried to, to pin him to the wall with a spear uh, twice, I think. And, and so there was this long season where David is being relentlessly pursued by Saul. So here now, David speaking in 2 Samuel 22, verse 1. David spoke to the Lord the words of this song. So he's singing now to God. On the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And David said this. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. And we, that sounds familiar to us. Yes, God is a rock and a refuge and a savior. Look, though, in verse 7, he, David says this. In my distress, I called upon the Lord, and, and to my God I called. And from his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. And then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quakes because he, God, was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. God Almighty here is intensely angry. Why? In some sense, that should make us Shudder to see it. The imagery is very bold and purposefully so, but God is not angry out of a snap judgment. We're often angry that way. God does not snap to anger. God is not angry out of selfish motives, and God is not out of his mind in his anger here. God is angry here because God is the source of justice. God is the source of all that is right. God is angry because he hates injustice and he hates sin. All of this is true because God loves what is good. And so his anger then in hating sin and injustice and all of these things, his anger is inspired by his deeper love for that which is good. And so when David is being unjustly pursued and violence is done to him and his people by his enemies and Saul, God doesn't say, hey, let's just sit and compromise and work this out. Sometimes that's wise for us. Don't just jump to anger. But that's not what happens here. God says, out of love, this is wrong. This is unjust. This is not the way it should be. God says, because I dearly love the good of my people, because I dearly love the glory of my name, because I dearly love the restoration of my creation, it stirs up in me anger when these things that I love are disrupted by sin. He's angry when we damage the things that he loves. This is true of God. What's fascinating to me is that even though it's true of God, we're told that in sometimes this is also to be true of us, that would be, we would be angry in the right context. You can see this in Ephesians 4 if you want to turn there, just a few verses. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes this, starting in verse 25, he says, Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. 
be angry? Yikes. It's an interesting statement. Now, as soon as he says that, we have to be very, very, very careful with this. Fire is good, but it is very dangerous if we do not use it well. And so Paul, as soon as he says, be angry, he says, and don't sin, because he knows that we'll tend to do that in our anger. And then he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, meaning don't let it linger. Don't let it stick around. Later in verse 31 of this chapter, he, he talks about it'll, it'll produce bitterness. It'll produce malice. It, it'll start to eat you inside if you let this anger linger inside of you. Because unlike God, we are sinners. And so we tend to use anger and other things for our own purposes. Which means that when we're angry or when we move in the direction of anger, we need to ask ourselves questions to check ourselves. Questions like this, am I angry over actual sin or just angry because of personal preferences? Angry because this person made me late, because this person doesn't put the dishes on the right part of the dish rack, because this person drives too slow. Those are not sins. Those are my preferences not good source of anger. We also need to ask ourselves, has my anger pushed out grace? Because we know that while we're reading through and following Jesus through Mark's gospel, so very few times does he get angry. And yet he spent his whole time with sinners. And even the really rough, the really bad sinners. You know, there's plenty for him to get angry about, and yet he doesn't. He gives grace very freely. And even though some things rouse him to anger, Jesus is not an angry person. And then lastly, we should ask ourselves things like, do I use the same standard for myself as I use for others? Do I tend to give myself grace when I'm angry about other people for the same thing? Or the reverse of that. Some people are tempted more in the direction of they'll give others lots of grace, but they'll get really angry with themselves about things. These are cautions to us. Let's keep the fire in the pit and be very careful to keep an eye on this anger. But still, even sometimes, with the help of God's Spirit, it is good to be angry because the honor of God and the good of his people is at stake. So when we see things like sex trafficking, when women and children are being sold into being used as sort of sex slaves for financial gain, that should make us angry. And when we see things like the poor kind of being pushed aside and shoved out so that people who have plenty can get more financial gain, that should make us angry. And when preachers even and spiritual leaders use their pulpits for their own power and political purposes instead of God's purposes, that should make us angry. And when we see people who are nice using the church to just please themselves instead of to worship God, that should make us angry. Because it is an, an abuse of what is good. Now, as we look at what Jesus is experiencing here in Mark, at the very beginning of this text, you'll notice 
that there's a couple of days that, that pass here. In chapter, or verse 11, he, he comes into Jerusalem, and the first thing he does is he goes into the temple. And it says then that he looked around at everything. It doesn't tell us what he thought about it or exactly what he saw, but he kind of surveys the temple. And then he goes out to Bethany, because Jerusalem, you know, there's a lot of people coming in for Passover, so Bethany's where he's staying the night, sort of like his hotel. So he goes into the temple, he looks around, and then he goes out to Bethany and goes to sleep. And to me, this shows me something very interesting. Jesus, in his anger, is not flying off the handle. He's not responding on the fly to something that just sparked anger in him. He's very thoughtful and purposeful about his anger. He's, as James says in chapter 1, slow to become angry. His anger then is in control and is not going to produce things that he regrets afterward. Because when Jesus gets angry here, it's not primarily about his, himself or his own preferences. He's looking at the temple, which is the dwelling of God, where the people experience in fullness the holiness of God. And what he sees in the temple is that something has gone very seriously wrong, and it makes Jesus angry. So what is this thing that makes him angry? What is Jesus so mad about? I think the answer to this for us is in what he says in verse 17. And Jesus was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? So in this, Jesus is citing something, maybe you even have a footnote in your Bible that tells you exactly where, but he's saying, is it not written? I'm citing something from the Old Testament. He's looking back at Isaiah 56, this part that he says. So let's look there, just a few verses to get context for what he's talking about. This line that talks about being a house of prayer for all peoples. This is Isaiah 56. I'll start in verse 6. Just a few verses. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and doesn't profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these people I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those who were already gathered. Here's what Jesus is saying here. Or the, not Jesus. Here's what Isaiah and the Lord is talking about here. The Lord is talking about his own relationship to, you see it in verse 6, foreigners who love the Lord. That he's going to gather these people in. So the reason why Jesus is angry is because he's speaking in defense of foreigners, outcasts, and Gentiles. People who are not called God's people. So, let me give us some background here. The temple, then, that Jesus is, is, is in at this time, we know that when they want the, the Jews wandered in the wilderness, when they came out 
of Egypt in the Exodus, they, they built this tabernacle, the place where the Lord would dwell and that they would worship and offer sacrifices. And that tabernacle could move. It was like a tent and they could fold it up. It was very big and specific and they would migrate around until the Lord brought them into the promised land. And then eventually, about 1000 BC, Solomon made that tabernacle tent permanent and built the temple. And that was the place then that the Lord would dwell among his people and that they would worship. That temple was destroyed in 586 BC, but Herod, years later, would rebuild the temple about 100 years before Jesus. So now, Jesus is coming into this temple, this place where the people would gather to worship the Lord, and here's the structure of it. In the middle part, the inner place, the Holy of Holies, and, and, and even the, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant where the Lord himself would dwell, there was four courts. The inner court, the innermost court, was called the Court of the Priests. And that's where they would do most of the sacrifice part. Outside of that was called the court of, the, uh, the court of Israel, which meant male Jews could enter into there. Sorry, ladies. The next court after that was called the court of women. Not all women, but Jewish women could enter into that court. And then the furthest court on the outskirts of the temple was the court of the Gentiles. So that's Everybody else, if you want to worship the Lord and you are not Jewish by birth and heritage, that's as far as you can go. So between the court of the Gentiles and these inner courts was this wall called a sorig. It was about four and a half feet tall, so, I mean, if you're real short, you could tiptoe and see over it. it. You know, for me, it's about right here, so I could easily see over. So if I'm a Gentile, which I am, I'm not Jewish by birth, that I could enter the court of the Gentiles and I can see what's going on, but I am not part of it. In fact, on this, uh, this wall, the sword between the court of the Gentiles and the inner courts, these were the words written on that wall. It said, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to thank for his ensuing death. Yikes. So they took this very seriously. The problem with this is that the Lord has said, I will bring these people in. I'm going to open my gates and bring in these Gentiles, bring in these outsiders, bring in these foreigners. And so while they had designed this to, to have this place where those people could worship and pray to the Lord, they actually used it to keep those people out. Now, during the time of Mark then, when Jesus is here, this is the place in which they turned, this is the part of the temple, the court of the Gentiles, that they had turned into a marketplace that they would sell sacrifices, sell lambs and doves to other people. There was money changing happening. So a place that was supposed to be the only place that a non-Jew could come to pray and to worship had now turned into a business zone. That's what made Jesus angry. It's not just that a market is happening. It's that this place is pushing out the Gentiles. You can hear it when he says it in verse 7, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. I'm drawing all the world in to worship me. But instead, this is happening. So the result then 
is that Jesus pronounces judgment then upon them. Now, we haven't even talked about the fig tree part, and I'll keep this short. I know we've hit noon. Man shall not live on bread alone. Okay, hang on, you'll make it. Okay, if you need to slip out, slip out, I understand. But between this, this cleansing of the temple is sandwiched right in the middle of this story about the fig tree. It's happening on either side. And the fig tree is actually an image of what's happening in the temple. And there's a few days that pass here, but you'll notice in the morning as he comes into the, into the temple, that's when he first sees the fig tree and curses it. And then the next day is when they go back by and see it withered. Now, some will look at this and say, Jesus is being really harsh. Because, you know, the fig tree, like it's not even season for figs. How, how are they supposed to find, you know, he gets mad, but it wasn't fig season, so why is he so mad? Now, it, that's because we don't quite understand what's happening. Uh, this is happening about April, that's when Passover's happening. And the season for the harvest of figs would have been after April. So Mark's true here. He's saying if the figs will not be ripe yet. But earlier than this, so in about March, is when the fig leaves come on, you know, the sort of Adam and Eve style fig leaves. So the tree then produces all these leaves and with those leaves produces buds of the figs in Arabic called taksh. And these buds of figs are edible. They're the sign that figs are coming. And so Jesus, as he's going into the temple, sees this leafy fig that's going to have these buds, right? Because it's got all the leaves. And so he walks over to it, but when he gets up close and really looks at it, there's not a bud on it. Just leaves. It looks fruitful and leafy, but it is actually barren and worthless. I hope you get the connection then with the temple. Passover is the busiest time of year. All of these people are imported. In fact, historians say that 255,000 lambs were slaughtered about the time of Passover. Travelers are, are migrating in. There's doves and other things. It's basically like the stock exchange floor, if you've ever seen pictures of that, or if you've played the game Pit, and people are yelling out, I got two, I got two. You know, that sort of thing is what's happening. And, and, and add to that experience animals. So put animals on the busy stock exchange floor, and that's what we're experiencing in the court of the Gentiles. So it is full of leaves, but it's dead inside. That's a scary caution to us. Because these people were then full of religion, but did not have the spirit, and did not have worship of God. If that's true of us, that's very scary. Because for the fig tree, Jesus curses it, and then when they come back and see it again, it's withered all the way down to the root, and it will never produce fruit again. At the end of it, I'll just talk briefly. I know just a few more minutes. Hang with me here. We're almost there. In verse 21, verse 20, the disciples, as they're coming back into the temple after the experience at the temple, and they see the fig tree the second time, and, and uh, Peter points out, hey, look, there's that fig tree, and, and it's withered. And Jesus' response to this, then, is very short and simple. He says this in 22. Jesus answered them, have faith 
in God. Instead of looking like the withered fig tree, Jesus says, I want you to really trust God. I want you to really trust me. I want you to really follow me. I don't want you to to get so distracted by all the busyness of all that's happening in the religious life. I want you to see me and really pursue me, a worship that's alive. And so when Jesus then later talks about prayer, we don't want to get silly and and, and, and think that we're just going to get anything we want. That's not what he means. What he means here in this discussion of prayer is he says, have faith in God, verse 23, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, it will be, uh, throw it into the sea, it will be done. What is this mountain? It's not just whoever says to any mountain, whoever says to this mountain, the temple was built on a small mountain. And he's looking at it, and he says, whoever says to this mountain, be uprooted and be thrown into the sea, it will be done for him. In essence, and we, we know that this is not a physical uprooting of the mountain, that there's a spiritual uprooting and tossing this religious life into the sea. The essence of this is this, that only living faith can cure a dead religion. So what do we do with all this? The response to Jesus by some of the people is, it says in the text that they looked to destroy him. Ultimately, they would kill him because they were afraid. They were threatened by Jesus. Jesus was taking apart the religious system that offered them a sense of security. He's taking down the wall that they had built to sort of make them feel safe, like we're insiders, like we have it together, and the others, boy, they're out there, poor them, that we think our heritage is going to protect us from taking a real look at the tree. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be dead inside like that. And so as Christians, then we really need to take an honest look at the tree both individually and then together as a body of the church. What does our fig tree really look like and are there any buds here? That examination can be really scary, but as we do it, Jesus' response is really simple. Remember, he says, have faith in God. Whatever you see inside the tree, don't don't trust yourself. Do not trust or depend upon your talent, your effort, your sacrifices. Do not count on your personal religion, but your hope is in Jesus. We need to turn to him. He is the one who will renew our faith. He is the one who will help us to follow him in holiness, and he is the one who will take what is potentially a withered dead tree and bring it to life. In essence that he will make a living faith in us so that we can worship a living God. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we know the dangers here. The dangers of not being angry at the right things. We know the dangers of becoming angry empty, barren trees that look leafy but do not produce fruit. Lord, we don't want that. We don't want to be that. And we need your grace and mercy then 
Help us to follow you in true worship and holiness so that we will produce fruit for your kingdom. We depend on you and your spirit for all things, and we ask these things in your name. Amen.